morning, everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of The Plan. Uh, when I started planning this series, I decided that, uh, telling the whole story, I wanted to try and sync up with Easter so that we'd hit the story, uh, the story would sync up with the Christian calendar on Easter. What that means is that uh, we are nowhere near Christmas in our sermons this Advent. And so if you're joining us for the first time or for the first time in this series, um, I changed the background to red. That made it more Christmassy. But, and uh, the decor, we did a, you know, we went all out with the decorations and I made sure to wear a Christmassy sweater. So um, I will make some connections, uh, but we're in a very different part of the Bible right now. We're going to be in the book of Judges. And we're in the book of Judges because we've been following the story of the Bible book by book as we go through from the very beginning. And we've been looking at the one story that unites everything in the Bible. And I think this is especially helpful for us in the book of Judges because the book of Judges is one of those books that is most susceptible to the Sunday school approach where we take a story out of context and we tell the story of Gideon or we tell the story of Samson and we say, yeah, you should be like Gideon or you should be like Samson or you should be like this. And we've taken them completely out of context and we don't know the significance of the story. As I remember, I taught our youth group the plan the very first time we went through it, and then we did a study of Judges, and I remember it was, one of the kids went, oh, I get it, like, I understand, and, and that, was, that was awesome to see that moment. So hopefully this will help us to understand what's going on in this book. Um, the story that unites the whole Bible and, and explains the book of Judges is this. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. All throughout the Bible, this is what God is doing. He made the world, he put people in it, he gave them the job of ruling on his behalf, and then he came down to live with them, and then we famously messed that up. And so God responded by restoring the plan to us through one group of people. He chose the Israelites and restored the plan through them, and that's the stage of the story we're at, where God is uh, setting up the plan through Israel for the sake of all the other nations. And as we've been following the story, what we've seen is God has put each of these pieces in place. So he started out by saving the people out of slavery in Egypt, so he has a people. He brought them to Sinai, where he had them build a tabernacle, and his presence moved into the tabernacle so that he now lives with his people. He gave them the law while they were at Mount Sinai to show them how to live out his purposes. And then last week in in the book of Joshua, we saw how he brought them into the promised land and helped them to conquer that land so they could actually have a place where they set up God's, God's plan. And so the promised land is now that place. And now we're moving into the book of Judges, which follows right on the book of Joshua. In fact, our coordinate passage is the very end of Joshua because that helps us understand where we're headed as we move into the next book. Um, And as I read this, I want you to watch for these four points, okay? Who is God's people? Where is their home? How can they meet with God? And what did God tell them to do? All right? So this is going to be a smattering of verses from Joshua 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, dot, dot, dot. And then he retells the story of everything God did, like basically what I just told you, right? Which is interesting that this happens so many times that a leader of Israel will just stop and retell them the story. You get the story repeated to you so many times because the story is really important, Okay. So he tells them the story, and then we pick it up back here in verse 12. He says, this is when they came in in the book of Joshua. 
I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove the Canaanites out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat them, eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. All right, so who are the people? Israel. So notice, in the past, we've been talking about Moses and Israel, and then Joshua and Israel, but there's no one that gets appointed to replace Joshua. So actually what happens is there's no central leader for Israel. So if we want to be a little bit more precise, we're talking about the tribes of Israel now. It's like if the United States, like the, the federal government just disappeared and you would, what you'd have left in the United States is state governments. They're a collection of tribal, tribal, or they're a group of tribes. And so that's who we're dealing with now. There's no central person to lead them. One of the famous mantras of this book is in those days Israel had no king. They had no central leader, Okay. Where is their home? We've been calling it the promised land, but they're in the land now. So I think we can just call it the land of Israel. The land has a name on it. Uh, people updated their maps at this point and wrote Israel on that part of the map. It's no longer just some claim that they're making about what God will someday do. They are in the land. Where can they meet with God? You can meet him in the tabernacle. And actually, this is a, a very important thing to understand about the Israelites being in the land, because it's going to change later. All Israelites live within a journey, uh, within a distance of the tabernacle where they can journey there relatively easily. The Israelites all live in this one contiguous area of land, and so they can all travel to the tabernacle whenever they need to. And so they all have access to the presence of God. Now, what did God tell them to do in this passage? He told them to serve God alone. This is, uh, you know, we're, we're one of the you know, millions of people who have something at the front of our house that says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's from this speech. That's from Joshua 24. He's, he's telling them, hey, serve the Lord. You do what you want, but we're going to serve the Lord. And they all say, yeah, we'll, we'll serve the Lord too. So that's their job is they're supposed to serve God. Now that they have the land, they got to they gotta live out the commands that God gave them which there's 613 of them. So one of the things as you read the story is you don't really find out until you get into the story sometimes which of those 613 commands are really going to be important. But it'll usually clue you in. And the book of Judges clues us in very quickly because here's verse 1 of the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? Okay, as you read Joshua, uh, Joshua is a very uh, triumphal book. And it talks about all the victories that Joshua won over the Canaanites. And you could be forgiven for thinking at the end of the book of Joshua that all the Canaanites have been driven out. Because it talks about his, his total victory and how much he wins. And then you get to the book of Judges and you find out actually Joshua uh, didn't finish the job. Uh, he, he kept winning his whole lifetime, but when he died, there were still more Canaanites to drive out. You remember last week I told you that the command to drive out the Canaanites was going to drive the plot for multiple books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, at least. We're going to be talking about this command for a while. Okay? So what we find out is there's more work to do. 
So a very important command that they had at this point was to drive out the Canaanites. It's part of serving the Lord. And we're going to see why it is so important to serving the Lord. Because how they do on this command will greatly affect how they do with all the rest of them. So as we go into the book of Judges, this is what we're watching for. How are they going to do with serving God? And specifically, how are they going to do with driving out the Canaanites? And as you start reading chapter 1, they do pretty well. This tribe will say to that tribe, hey, let's go up and fight those Canaanites. And they'll go and they'll fight and they'll win. And then this tribe will go up and fight those Canaanites. It's a whole bunch of names that you don't recognize and geography that you don't know, but it all seems to be going very well until verse 37. Because in verse 37 it says this, But the tribe of Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Taanak or Dor or Eblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did the tribe of Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, nor did the tribe of Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Akhlab or Azkib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. Neither did the tribe of Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath and on and on. You get the picture. So you have to understand, these, were, these, these wars went on for generations. A couple of gen- this was a long campaign, right? And it got tiring, and some of those Canaanites were just uncooperative. They just would not leave. And so they got to a point where they said, you know, we got most of the land, and there's only a few of them left, so why don't we, why don't we just make a treaty? Or, I know, instead of driving them out, why don't we just make slaves of them? Once we're more powerful than them, we don't need to go through all the work of actually driving them out. We'll just make them our slaves. So they compromise. And they, they don't finish, they decide not to finish the job that God gives them. In fact, actually what they're doing is they're using the victories God is winning for a totally different purpose, to get slaves. So instead of driving out the Canaanites, the Israelites enslaved them. It's two red flags there. Number one red flag is they're not fulfilling the command God gave them, this very important command that he gave them. Number two is they are, they are disobeying God in a way that bears a strong resemblance to Pharaoh. Right? This is not a good pattern for them to be following. Um, so, so this is a bad sign. right? And what it means is that it, God, is, God is winning the battles for them, and then what they do with the Canaanites is how they clean up afterward. And they're supposed to be driving them out, but instead they're making slaves of them. So they're using the victories God is winning to disobey God and to profit themselves. Right? They, are, they are misusing the victories that God is winning. So God is not particularly uh, happy with this policy that they've adopted. And so an angel of the Lord comes to the Israelites. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you to the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said... I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. So God says, hey, you were supposed to drive them out. That's why I'm winning battles for you, so you can drive them out so this land can be completely dedicated to me. And instead, you are not following through on that, and you're actually turning them into slaves. So you're keeping them around, and you're making money. You're profiting off of what I'm doing and and building up a stronger... um, rebellious culture 
And so how is God going to respond when they're using his victories to, to build up a re- this rebellious culture? He's not going to win battles for them anymore. When Israel abandoned God's plan, he stopped fighting their battles for them. He says, all right, fine. The Canaanites that are there, they're, they're staying. I'm not going to keep winning battles over them so you can keep them around and turn them into slaves. That's not what this is for. So I'm not going to keep winning battles for you. The Canaanites that are here are staying because I'm not going to help. Right? This is not God like throwing a tantrum or taking his ball and going home. This is God refusing to enable rebellion. Right? He's not going to help them disobey him. So now, if they're going down that path, they're going to they're have to deal with the Canaanites themselves. And this arrangement sets us off into the rest of the book of Judges, which is a series of cycles of stories that follow a repeated pattern. There are 12 judges, there are 12 judge cycles that we go through, and it's all because of this situation that's happened. You'll notice on your bulletins, there's a lot of back and forth between God and his people. So there's, bulletins, there's bulletin points on the left side for what the people do and on the right side for what God does because there's some back and forth. But the rest of what we're going to talk about is the cycles that are set in motion because the Israelites refused to follow through on God's command and God refused to help them disobey him. Now, we're not going to have time to go into the specific cycles that happen, but thankfully, you can actually get pretty much the entire plot of Judges from just reading Judges chapter 2 because it summarizes everything that's going to happen. So we're going to look at that summary and see what happens in a situation like this where the people have disobeyed God's plan, have refused to follow through, and God's not going to help them rebel anymore. We're also going to find out why it was so important for them to drive out the Canaanites because here's what happened. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Asherahs. Okay, so remember, as we talked about last week, uh, the whole point of Israel being in the land is that people are supposed to be able to look at Israel and see God. They're supposed to be able to look at this place and this people and the way they're living and be able to understand who God is. And so God told them to drive out the, the Canaanites so the Canaanite influence wouldn't be in that land because what happens with the Canaanite influence is exactly what we've seen here is that the people of Israel, they start looking around at what their neighbors are doing and saying, hey, that, that looks like fun. That, that, looks, that actually looks more satisfying. Most likely the temptation was the fact that Canaanite religion was very magical, meaning that you could do these certain things and get exactly what you want from the gods. If you do this thing, your crops will do well. If you do this thing, you will have a child. It was a way of bartering with the gods so you could have some kind of control and get some kind of immediate satisfaction. And so there would be a temptation. If God isn't giving you what you want on your timeline, maybe Baal will if you bribe him well enough. And so there's this temptation to these other religions that have other ways of interacting with God where you, or their gods where you get some kind of control or some kind of more immediate satisfaction. And so they get tempted away and they start worshiping other gods. And so they, the Israelites forgot God and served Canaanite gods instead, which is a major problem because the fate of humanity rests on the ability of the Israelites or the success of the Israelites revealing God's nature to the world. Right? That's the whole point. They are the light to the nations. We look at Israel and we see God. 
And now when we look at Israel, we see Canaanite gods, which, would, which is, would be worse than if there was no plan at all because we're actually being, the world is being deceived about who God is. So God has to respond. God has to deal with this situation. And so the way he responds is in verse 14, it says, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. So when Israel abandoned God himself, he stopped protecting them from their neighbors. Now again, we might read this and kind of see, well, God is just taking his ball and going home or refusing to play nice or, or throwing, you know. We might view this as something negative, but it, it's actually essential to the project uh, that God is doing with the Israelites because in that culture, if you, if you look at a nation and that nation is flourishing, is doing well, is winning battles, then you can make two assumptions. One, their God is powerful, and two, their God is happy with them. All right? If a culture is successful, then their God is powerful and their God is happy with them. And so if Israel is independent and strong and, and doing well for themselves, then their God is powerful, which is true, but their God is also happy with them, which is not true. Remember, we've talked about this when it came to the priests in the tabernacle. The God has to demonstrate when he endorses what they're doing and when he doesn't. And so to show the world and to, to clearly communicate that these people are not representing God well, that he does not endorse their behavior and, and what they're doing, he has to oppose them. And so not only is God not fighting their battles for them, he's actually now fighting against them. Because God needs to demonstrate one way or the other, who he is. So he either demonstrates that by supporting them as they obey him or by punishing them as they disobey him so that the world will still know God is not happy with what they're doing. Now, this is the point in the story where I've realized that I've been getting the cycles a bit wrong because normally the way we tell the story is uh, Israel disobeys, God sends people to conquer them, Israel repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. But as you read the story, that in, in chapter 2, that's not the way it's described. And it's actually not what happens when we look at the cycles of the individual stories. So here's what it actually says in chapter 2. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Where does it mention Israel repenting in that passage? It doesn't. In the 12 cycles of Judges, how many times does the book of Judges say that the Israelites repented, do you think? Zero. It says they called out. It says they cried out to God because of their suffering. But it doesn't say that they said, oh, hey, God, we're sorry, we're wrong, we're coming back to you, we're going to do things right from now on. We promise, right? There's no, there's no come to Jesus, apology, going to change my ways kind of moment. And that's, so that's not what God is responding to. It says here, the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. What God is responding to is the suffering of his people. When their suffering reached a certain point, God sent a judge to deliver them. 
That's what's actually happening here. When their suffering became too great, God inspired judges to deliver them. Now, I think that's important for two reasons, okay? The first reason is because it helps us get a picture of who God is here. God is not a stern, cold God standing up there waiting for them to say the right words before he's willing to save them. You haven't said, you know, like, like with James, we're teaching him to be polite, and so he can't get down from the dinner table until he says, uh, may I be excused, please, right? He needs to say the words because he's learning those words, okay? Except we're also potty training him, so there are times when he doesn't need to say those words, he should just go. <laughs> but that's not what God is doing here. God is not waiting for them to, to dot the I's and, or cross the I's and Dot the I's and cross the T's and like that kind of thing. God is responding out of compassion and love for his people and their suffering and out of desire not to lose them because he's keeping the door open for the covenant. He's not going to let them be destroyed and he cares about the fact that they're suffering so he sends judges to deliver them. The other reason why I think that's important for us to understand as we look at judges is because it helps us remember that the judges are not religious leaders. Well, one of them is, Deborah, because she's also a prophetess, is a religious leader, but the judges are not leading the people back, they're they're not leading revivals, they're leading armies. God sends the judges to deliver them from their opponents, but they're not religious leaders, And, and we need to remember that because the judges actually can be pretty awful. And as you read through the stories, what you find is as you go through the 12 cycles, the judges get worse. And unfortunately, it's often the ones that we hold up and say, hey, you should be like Gideon. Don't be like Gideon. First of all, the whole fleece thing, if you pay, that, the fleece is a way for Gideon to try and avoid doing what God, he knows God has already told him to do. But if you look at the career arc for Gideon, he starts by destroying an idol, which is awesome. And he finishes by building a new idol. And he leaves Israel worshiping idols again. He's number five out of 12. Number eight is Jephthah. Jephthah is a mountain thug that the Israelites call to deliver them because they need someone who can fight. And he, he thinks, he is so ignorant of God that he, he thinks he has to bribe God to give him a victory. So he says, hey God, if I win, then I will sacrifice whatever comes out of my house first to you. So he wins, and he comes home, and the first thing to come out of his house is his daughter. And so he sacrifices his daughter. And unfortunately, sometimes we read that story and we think, wait, God, God wanted him to do that. He was supposed to keep that promise. But do you remember last week that we talk, God was talking to them about don't be like the Canaanites? And what was the worst thing that the Canaanites did? What was the most extreme example God listed of what the Canaanites did that they should never do? It was sacrifice children. But Jephthah is so completely ignorant. The leader of the Israelites is so completely ignorant of who God is that he thinks God wants him to sacrifice his daughter. And then, I think he's number eight, number 12, Samson. Samson is a mess. He is, he is such a mess that when an angel comes to his mom and, and, uh, before she gets pregnant and prophesies that he's coming... The, the angel lowers her expectations. He actually says Samson's going to start to deliver the, Philist- deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. He's going to start it. He's not going to finish it because he's going to do a terrible job. He's not actually going to deliver a single Israelite from oppression. He's going to kill a bunch of Philistines, but it's mainly because they keep getting in his way of marrying Philistine women. It's, he, and he breaks every vow that he's supposed to make, and he's a complete failure. Don't be like Samson. What you're supposed to be realizing when you get to this point in the story is that even the judges are getting worse. Each time you go through the cycle, Israel gets worse. And this is exactly what the summary in chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2 leads us to expect. 
It says, when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. See, here's the thing. This isn't cycles. They don't start here and then disobey God and then get persecuted and then repent and come back to where they started. This is a downward spiral. They get worse every time they go through the loop. They're not getting better. They're not returning to where they were. Every time they, go, they do worse than the time before. Once they were delivered, the Israelites became even more sinful and rebellious than before, and they just keep going in a downward spiral until you get to the last like three chapters of Judges, which are horrible. I'm not even going to get into what happens in the last three chapters of Joshua. I think it's three. I didn't, or Judges. I didn't, I didn't even go to read them, so I, <laughs> I think it's three. Two, the end of Judges is just a horror show of abuse and violence and perversion and corruption and civil war. And it is the, just this incredibly horrible dark place that the Israelites end up in. And I think we're told, I mean, when you finish those stories, it's deeply depressing. And it's dark and it's disturbing. And I think that's partly there for us to understand why God was so clear about his command for them to drive the Canaanites out because he knew where that would lead. And those little compromises at the beginning of the story seemed like not a big deal to the Israelites, but it became a huge deal when we see how it completely set them off the rails and how they, they just bottom out in the most horrifying ways you can imagine. That's the trajectory that it put them on. And so you find this spiral going down and down and down until they hit absolute rock bottom because that's where the path that they chose led them to. And that's the book of Judges. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's not a very, you can see why I wore the Christmas sweater. Except that actually what I find, is may not be a great message for Christmas, but it is a fantastic set up to talk about Advent. Advent is all about waiting for Jesus and our need for Jesus. And the book of Judges demonstrates more clearly, I think, than any other part of the Old Testament why the Israelites needed a Messiah. And as we reflect on how our stories can parallel the book of Judges, we also see how desperately we need a Messiah. So we pull out a few lessons that we can pull from this, recognizing that we are in relationship or invited into a relationship with the same God of this, of this story. The first thing that we learn is that compromising with sin always pulls us away from God's plan. We face the same temptation as we battle sin in our lives to reach a certain part, part where we, point where we've been fighting for a while and we're getting tired of it and we think, you know what, this is good enough, I'll make a treaty with this with this sin, with this part of my old self, and I'll let it live in this little box, and we won't bother each other, and this will be fine. And we make these little treaties, and we, we don't recognize that any compromise with sin leads us away from God's plan. I can give you an example in my life. I, uh, there was a time in my life when I was, uh, the thing I was best at was cutting people down with words. And I had a temper that caused me to use that quite a bit. And I have worked very hard to tame that. 
and to, to stop that kind of behavior. And if I'm completely honest, I, there was a point where I signed a treaty where I said, hey, I'm not saying these things to people anymore. I'm still thinking them, but I'm not saying them to people, and I'm not saying them to other people about them as much. And so how about this? I won't say these things to people, but I'll say them to my steering wheel, and I'll say them to my showerhead. And I will dwell on them in those moments in privacy, and no one will ever hear them, and it'll be fine. Seems like a reasonable treaty, right? And yet what I find is that when I... You know, we're all going to feel moments of frustration at times, right? That's going to happen. But what I'm talking about is I then choose to set off a little, a little secret place in my life where I can dwell on those frustrations, and I can... I can work them over and get angry and, and come up with arguments and come up with criticisms and, and, you know, to my steering wheel or to my shower head. And what it does is it, it poisons me because all that stuff is still in there the next time I talk to that person. And it poisons that relationship. And that is a treaty that I make that pulls me away from God's plan because God's plan is that I won't dwell on those things, that I won't work myself up into bitterness and anger. And that's a battle that I need to continue to fight. Another place where we might make treaties that um, are maybe a little more obvious, but um, perhaps also more dangerous and, and tempting, um, you know, when we want to control, um, control our sexual urges, and we say, hey, I have gotten to the point where I'm not sleeping around. You know, I'm not, I'm not sleeping around. I, I can control my relationships, but I'll just, I'll just let it out a little bit with my computer because that won't hurt anybody. And I've got that treaty. You know, we have all kinds of temptations in our lives and we say, well, I'll just, I'll just make this little treaty. And those treaties always pull us away from God's plan. And it, you don't, it doesn't seem like very much at first, but it always leads you away because God's plan is not for you to have compromises with sin. God's plan is for you to always be winning battles against it, to always be moving that direction to be conquering sin in your life. Right? And what we see from the story of Israel is that the longer we spend on our own path, the further we drift from God and his character. As we have those treaties and we're okay with those treaties and we don't resist those treaties, we gradually part farther and farther away from God. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but every once in a while you might look around and go, how did I get here? I swore I would never be here. Or, really like judges, I swore I would never be here again. How did this happen? How did I get here? What is wrong with me that I fell into this again? It's because that path has been leading us farther and farther away. And we see the Israelites forgot what they knew about right and wrong, what they knew about God's plan for them. Jephthah didn't even know he wasn't supposed to burn his own child to God. Right? And we see that happen to us. And maybe today you're realizing, wow, I'm in that place. And the question then is, how does God feel about me? When you realize you're in that place, it doesn't feel good. And what can add another layer to that is thinking, wow, God must be just furious with me. He must be so fed up with me. And that's why I think it's also important to learn from the story of Israel that even when we rebel, God still loves and watches over us. 
God doesn't enable that, that rebellion. So maybe you're experiencing failures or obstacles in your life because God's not going to help you to rebel against him. But that doesn't mean that God is done with you. That doesn't mean that God has turned his back and crossed his arms. God loves you and is watching over you and is keeping that door open for you to return to him at any moment. Today. That's the God that the Bible teaches us about all the way back in Judges. You don't have to wait for Jesus to find the God of the Good Samaritan, or the, of the prodigal son. God is always throughout the story watching over his people and loving his people. But the Israelites, their hope was, was in these leaders who would come up and would fight battles, and the leaders were deeply flawed, but they could at least win some battles because God would inspire them to win battles, and it would give them that, that temporary breath of air, that temporary relief before they fell back into their spiral. So they had only these fleeting moments of hope. And for us, I think the Christmas season can often be that fleeting moment of hope. For a lot of people who don't know Jesus, there's that one month of the year where we actually act like we love each other or talk at least like we love each other unless we're in line for, um, you know, sales. But we talk about hope and we talk about peace and we talk about love and we talk about who we want to be and we get that brief, brief break. Um, but then we fall right back into it for the rest of the year, right? But the actual good news of Christmas is not in a season where we just talk about love and hope and joy. The good news of Christmas is, well, let's, let's read it from an early part of the Christmas story. There's an angel who came to a priest named Zechariah and said, your son is going to be a prophet who will go before the Messiah, who will go before God. And Zechariah um, says this prophecy, this poem, to his son who will be John the Baptist. And this is, this is the last part of it. He says, you, my child, will be called the, a prophet of the Most High. For you go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. See, Zechariah uh, is living in a time when those cycles have continued for centuries. There are, there are, there are good moments in the rest of the story of Israel, but they never, they never figure things out because they need a savior. And so Zechariah is living at the end of a 400-year period where they have been waiting for God to come, for the Messiah to come, and they have been in this spiral. Some of the stuff that happened in that period before Jesus was just as bad as the judges. And when he knows that the Messiah is coming, he sees a hope that will fully and finally save Israel. The tender mercy of God that will shine on those living in darkness, this deep, deep darkness they're living in, in the shadow of death, and to guide them into the path of peace. He sees in the coming of Jesus the full and final hope for God's people. That's what we proclaim at Christmas. No matter how far you have drifted, you have hope in the coming of Jesus Christ to fully and finally restore you. Now, it's still going to be a battle. It's still going to be a struggle. There will still be opportunities where you may sign those treaties and may have to break them and may have to you know, get back on the path. But when you give your life to Jesus, 
Jesus is not one of those judges who's just as flawed as the rest of us who can only give us temporary relief. He died for our sins to save us. He brought new life through his resurrection, and he gives us the Spirit of God to transform us. That is the hope that we proclaim in Christmas. It is far more than a season. It is far more than a momentary hope. It is an eternal hope that we can be transformed and to be pulled out of the spirals of our lives. So what I want you to hear today is wherever you may be in your own version of the path of the judges, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ today. Today. As we close, I'm going to invite you to consider taking some next steps. I don't know where you're at, but the next step for you may be to give your life to Jesus, to ask for him to save you and to pull you out of your tailspin and to change your life. Today is the best day for you to do that, and so I encourage you to come forward during our final song, or you can grab a staff member after church, or if you're watching online, you can get in touch with us or talk to a Christian that you trust, but today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus. If you want to get more connected with a church family, we encourage you to take your connection card and check the box that you want to go to a Connect class, because the the battle that we face to... um, to drive out our old selves, to drive out sin, is something that can't be won alone. You need the Holy Spirit, you need Jesus, and you need the congregation. And so if you want to be, uh, find out what it means to be a part of this congregation, um, just check that box and we'll be setting up a time for you to hear about who we are, what we do, and how you can participate. You can also join one of our small groups and you can check that box on your connected card. This, is, this gives you a group of relationships where you go through life together, you pray together, you, you uh, reflect on the sermons together, and you you encourage each other in your own battles. And finally, you can join a service team as God invites us to give back, to serve in his kingdom, and this church provides many opportunities for you to serve as well, and you can check that box in your Connect card. So I encourage you to consider what is the next step that God is calling to you today as we stand and sing our final song.